welcome to the Stalk and I podcast for single women considering solo motherhood by donor conception. I'm your host, Mel Johnson, the solo motherhood coach and solo mum to a three-year-old daughter. For series four of the podcast, I talk to a variety of professionals about specific topics relevant to solo parenthood where they have an expertise. For me, being comfortable being single is one of the key ingredients to being comfortable becoming a solo parent. Being single and becoming a parent are two very different things, but I think before embarking on the journey to solo parenthood, it's important that we are first positive about being single and secure in that. Many of us have gone through feelings of failure and shame that we've not been able to meet a suitable partner to have a baby with. My view is that is because it's deeply embedded by society that this is the route to happiness, to have a partner. That's why I was really excited to see a new book and some great work from Shaney Silver. Her book is out on the 26th of October called A Single Revolution. When I saw it, I immediately contacted her to ask if she'd be a guest on the podcast to discuss this topic. And so I was really excited when she agreed. Shaney is a writer and the host of a single-serving podcast. Her work focuses on changing the negative narratives around being single in an effort to improve the way single life is experienced. Shaney's work helps single people reframe the limiting, shame-filled societal messages around singlehood and reframe them to hold the truth and authenticity. In my experience, The more content we are being single and the more we reframe the negative narratives around being single and really embrace being single in a really positive way, then the easier it is to embark on the journey to solo motherhood. And that's exactly what this episode covers with Shaney. Shaney, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It is my absolute pleasure to be here. I asked you if you would like to be a guest when I saw a post on Instagram that you had a new book coming out called, is it The Single Revolution? It is called A Single Revolution. Don't look for a match, light one. I'm so excited about it. (laughs) I literally, I saw it and I was like, I cannot wait to read that book. That is like right up my street. And I thought, right, let me reach out to you because Although my audience is single women considering solo motherhood, which I know is not your situation, I think being single and the narrative around being single is such an important part of considering solo motherhood. So, and it's one of the subjects I love discussing and unpacking. So I thought you'd be a great guest to help me do that. The other thing is I know that you are child-free by choice and that's also an interesting topic for my listeners to discuss because it's a decision many people are trying to make. Should I decide not to have children or should I decide to have children on my own? So it'll be great to chat about both of those topics. Before we delve in, would you like to give yourself an introduction, just who you are and and what you're up to? Sure. Well, uh, my name is Shaney Silver. I am a writer and a podcaster, and I live in New Orleans, Louisiana in the U.S. Um, I just moved here about three months ago, and prior to that, I was in Brooklyn for about eight years, and I loved it. It was so much fun, but then there was a pandemic, and Brooklyn suddenly became very lonely and very expensive for what it was. So I decided to move to where I have very good friends and uh, closer to my family. And so this has been really fun. 
And um, since about, gosh, I guess since about 2013, I've been writing on the topics of dating and singlehood, but really in the last, I would say the last three to four years, I've started really um, challenging the narratives around singlehood as opposed to just, you know, being another voice complaining about dating and all of its uh, niceties, we can call them. I decided to try to do something to affect change because I don't like the way that single women over a certain age are discussed. I don't like the way we are treated. And more than anything, I don't like the way that we think about ourselves. So I wanted to challenge the existing narratives of singlehood, point out their flaws and falsehoods, and then hopefully put better narratives in place so that single women can start feeling better and stop feeling those uh, terrible feelings that we're all so familiar with, like desperation, longing, loneliness, pain of all sorts. Um, Because it is my, not only my belief, but my experience that singlehood is incredible. It is so free and full of possibility. And it is completely customized and tailored to ourselves. And I think if we are too mired down in the uh, old negative narratives of singlehood, we're missing a beautiful opportunity. So I would like single women during our singlehood for however long it lasts to appreciate it and to live it fully and beautifully because we, we have that ability. See, before we've even got into this interview, I'm already like, oh yeah, this is amazing. I'm still <laughs> inspired hearing those words. And I just feel like it's just a message that more people need to be talking about and it's just so nice to hear you talking about it because I think just having so many coaching clients who are just trying to let go of the grief of not having a relationship and all of the things that that means and then just hearing a different perspective on it to say actually you could embrace that and and really like live the single life is is just so amazing so what is the narrative what what do you think the current narrative is and how are you working on trying to change it well the current narrative is one that puts a single woman particularly i would say single women over 30 um in a place of disfavor of uh assumed flaw assumed fault assumed um it is assumed that we are unwanted unwantable there's something wrong with us um and that's all horrible so all of those narratives are uh incredibly rude and dismissive and assumptive and hurtful Um, but they really really start to shine when you compare them to the narratives around single men and there's nothing like it (laughs) if you look at the societally assumed narratives of single men they are playboys with all the opportunity and time in the world and um i think the thing that is hardest for me is the fact that single men are seen as a catch while single women are seen as a problem I think for me, that's the hardest part of the narrative. Um, And I hate to have to, you know, like compare single women to single men to make my point. And I can make it without (laughs) the comparison to single men for sure. What is most abhorrent to me in the way single women are viewed is that essentially, in, in my opinion, and I might be wrong, I acknowledge I might be wrong, but in my opinion, all of the narratives assigned to single women are lying. That's why I have the hardest time with it because we, I mean, if all, if all we're fed is the, neg- the negative narratives of singlehood, 
yeah, we're probably going to take on some of those traits because what options do we know that we have if we've never seen any? But if you really examine your own feelings around singlehood and your own experiences of singlehood and start entertaining the idea of something better, we aren't actually what the world says we are. And we're not confined to those narratives either. So I don't think I would have as big of a problem with the way single women are discussed if there was any truth to it. There just isn't. And I have a hard time with lies making women feel terrible. So that's sort of what I like to get to the core of. And um, I mean, I know this is like really abstract the way that I'm speaking, but I do like to give concrete examples of what I mean. The most common, like easy way that I tell people about the work that I do, the simplest reframe I can give is this. If you've ever thought to yourself as a single woman, I hate sleeping alone and you feel this void in the bed and it's, that's a problem. The reframe of that sentence and that thought is simply, I get the whole bed. That's the difference. The same thing is happening both times. You're still sleeping by yourself in both scenarios, but in one, you're viewing it from a lens of abundance and what you get to do. And then from the other perspective, the prior narrative of singlehood is, is essentially centering what you lack. And I think if we're only centering what we lack, we are keeping ourselves blind to so much that we do have. And the more you start to examine what you have, uh, I have a sneaky suspicion that single women will start to enjoy singlehood quite a bit more. I, I'm sitting here almost feeling a little bit frustrated that I didn't speak to you like quite a few years ago, <laughs> you know, and because I feel frustrated with myself that I spent too many of my single years before having um, my daughter wishing I was in a relationship rather than I did live life don't get me wrong so I wasn't like sitting at home crying I was living an amazing life but still I the I think it was my self-talk was still negative about being single whereas um I love that that reframe and I I do strongly believe that we find what we're looking for as well so if you if you look for the positives you'll find the positives if you constantly look for what's wrong you'll find what's wrong and so it's it's just about putting yourself on that right direction really isn't it and what about um one of the things I think is really important is the language we use I've seen that you've written a bit about this as well like we we talk about everyone I think around us almost is like when you're still single so it's 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 looking for a time as quickly as possible that you won't be single anymore is is it seems to be the language and and that how do we accept being single and do you think the language we use is important in this context oh I think it's vastly important because language is what is hurting our feelings Language is what we're spending thousands of dollars in therapy on. Language is keeping single women really small and we don't have to hear it. We can choose not to internalize it when we do hear it. Language is vastly important. And it's also, you know, since there's a reason we didn't, you and I didn't talk years ago. Nobody was talking about this years ago. I wasn't talking about this years ago. I was miserably single for a full decade before I sort of had this mental shift and decided it had worked so well i wanted to tell other women about it um, but the language is mass massively important and it's you can use whatever language fits you there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all way to discuss singlehood and if you want to hate your singlehood hate it all you want that's that's totally your prerogative but if you are sick of hating your singlehood if you are exhausted with the frustration and the effort and all of it if you're just tired of that there is another way out of that um, 
you know, pit of despair that does not involve finding a partner. You already have everything you need to feel better about singlehood. It's just that nobody's talking about that. And so it's keeping single women really small and using phrases like, you know, single AF and still single and all these self-deprecating ways that we discuss singlehood because we think that that makes it better. We think if we make it funny, that makes it better. If we, you know, use cute little uh, terminologies around singlehood in public, that will make people around us feel more comfortable and will make ourselves feel less pathetic in their eyes. But we can do so much more than those dumb little band-aids, in my opinion. We can actually affect real change in the way singlehood is seen and discussed. I think it would be lovely if singlehood could be seen as just as desirable as couplehood. Because when you get down to it, one is not happier than the other. One will never be happier than the other. One will never be more perfect than the other. It's never about the couple being this ideal state. I don't know if anyone has talked to many couples lately, but I can assure you it is not an ideal state. So, you know, if, if couplehood has just as much opportunity to be difficult and full of struggle as singlehood does, why can't both be capable of just as much joy in equal measure? Um, I would like that to be true because I would like more women to be comfortable and enjoy their singlehood, not just accept it, but enjoy it. And beyond that, I would like more women who are in relationships that are making them unhappy to feel comfortable leaving. And I don't think that we are because we still view anything as better than singlehood. And that's just not true. I speak to so many people who are scared to leave a relationship because um, they don't want to be on their own. They don't want to, they don't want to go back to being single. And so they stay for way too long or they get into a relationship that they know isn't really good for them. And it's so sad to see people in unhappy relationships. I see people in, in really unhappy relationships still clinging on because the idea of being single is, is and, and you just think that, like you say, that's not the reality. But if everyone around you is telling you it is the reality and all the films and books and society and the media are still saying happily ever after is achieved when you meet the one, I think that's just so deeply embedded in us, isn't it? It's really hard to let go of that story. It's incredibly hard. It's the one we were raised with. I went three and a half decades of my life only hearing one singlehood narrative and it sucked. I mean, obviously it's going to take some time to rewrite that ship. You know what I mean? It's, it's very difficult. And I'm, I'm very optimistic about uh, those who are children right now. I think they will grow up in a very different place. I look at the, the children's books that are on the wall of my niece's nursery, and I'm so optimistic for her upbringing and her experience with relationships. Uh, but she's only one year old. <laughs> you know I mean, she's just getting started. And that the fact that we're doing better now does not negate what you and I grew up with. We still grew up with it. It's still a valid part of our story. And our change is allowed to be difficult and slow if it needs to be. But I'm hoping that the work that I do and the book that's about to come out will hopefully shine a bit more light on this because I used to be tired for myself. I used to be exhausted for myself and frustrated for myself. And now I feel that way for single women who still think they have to be stuck in the mire because no one's ever showed them anything else. So there is almost this resistance to liking our singlehood or reframing singlehood for ourselves because the narrative around that is that if you do that, if you like singlehood, you're going to be single longer. And we still see that 
as something to avoid. I mean, there's so many layers to how baked into our psyche the negative narratives of singlehood are, that we, we are afraid to allow ourselves to be happy without a partner. It's just, it, it hurts my heart and it's, it sometimes makes me really angry. So I'm hoping that by being on your podcast and other podcasts and sending my book out into the world, I will hopefully be able to help more people break free of a very, very limiting perspective. Amazing. And you said that you went through a mental shift. Was that like, uh, you know, overnight? Was it a long period? How did that happen? What, what happened with you? It was a very slow process. I want to make that incredibly clear. I'm a cancer sun sign and I feel like we move a little slowly sometimes, but um, it was, it was very slow. There was definitely one moment where the first like kernel of an idea hit me and it was just, you know, a very average day, a very average moment. There was a thought that was in my head that almost, you know, wasn't placed there by me. And it was just that I, I didn't have to find someone for my life to start. No one had ever told me that before. I had to come by that thought on my own. And it took a really long time to get there. And it took several more years for that idea to bloom a little bigger uh, because of all the prior ways of thinking about singlehood that had been baked into me from my upbringing, from stories we hear, from movies, TV shows, songs. How many songs are about love and relationships compared to how many are about singlehood. Very, very few are about singlehood. And if they are about singlehood, they're about some dramatic breakup in a country song. And I'm just, I can't, like there's no, nothing celebrates singlehood. Nothing lauds singlehood, nothing. It only shames us. It only shames us as the sad spinster and I'm tired of it. But yeah, it did. It started small and it grew over time. And I'm hoping that I'm taking all of that slow growth and development that I went through over years and hopefully I'm condensing it for other women to move the process along a bit faster. But yeah, it, it wasn't overnight. I, I would never, ever say that this was an overnight process. It built on itself. But as it built, it built faster. I think once you experience for yourself the positivity involved in a life completely led by you, more good feelings start to follow. It's a bit of a snowball effect. I think one of the things that I say to my listeners is, it's who's in your life as well. Because if you have only got your life made up of friendships who are married with children, you stand out as the only one who hasn't had that. So from a comparison point of view, that's like a glaring thing where you're like, I feel like the odd one out. I feel like I'm left behind that group, etc. One of the things I say to people is, diversify who's in your life diversify who you're following on social media the content you're reading and or consuming and your friendship group have older friends younger friends single friends friends with like you need to sort of attract more of that diversity in your life so that you don't feel you're just one situation of many situations and I think just listening to you you know hearing how you feel about being single is so inspiring and it, it that I'm like oh yes you know and actually if I was surrounded by people who talked like that uh, you know I'm sure we'd all feel you know very different much more quickly so it, do you feel like you've got quite a, di a diverse friendship group and people around you does that help I think I do but by and large I mean we're human beings human beings are extremely inclined to partner up 
And then they're extremely inclined to procreate. That's just kind of what happens with humans. Um, so no matter what, no matter how much I diversify my friend groups and who I'm spending time with, eventually everybody's going to partner and have a kid, adopt a kid, try to have a kid or decide that that's not their path. But parenthood at some point is going to be a decision that is evaluated. And I, I tell my listeners this all the time, your single friends are the only friends with a hole in the bucket because people will partner. So you have to keep replenishing your stock of single friends. Um, and that's okay. I think that's fine. I, I hold no resentment to people in my life who partner. I'm very happy for them because I would want them to be happy for me. And I intend to be happy for myself when I partner. Um, but more than that, like we don't have to feel like we're on a constant treadmill of acquiring new friends just to feel good. Like I think the, the core issue there is to ask ourselves why we are so committed to comparison. I think comparison is the thief of not only joy, but it is the thief of time. It is the thief of headspace. It is the thief of your mental health. Comparison is a fool's errand. It really is. There is no benefit that I see from comparing yourself to other people. I do see a lot of benefit though in asking yourself why you compare really genuinely asking why you're comparing yourself to other people. What does that give you? How does it serve you to compare yourself to others? And you know, what is the real value of being like everybody else? What is the value of looking at what other people have and allowing that to say something about your life? You know, our inherent wants as individuals, those are valid for sure. But if they're only coming through comparison, I wonder if they're really ours at all. I mean, I'm, your podcast is about parenthood and motherhood. And like I, for the vast majority of my life, thought I was going to be a mother. I, it was just assumed I just assume that you grow up, you get married and you have kids. And therefore that's what I thought I wanted because that was the accepted life status. And then a funny thing happened. All my friends started doing that and I saw what motherhood really entailed. And the more I saw it, the less I wanted it. And one day I finally told myself, because I, I felt like I was going down this path of doom, like getting closer and closer and closer to something I was going to have to do that I didn't want to do, but I wasn't admitting to myself that I didn't want to do it. And one day I was just like, you don't have to. If you don't want to have a baby, you don't have to have a baby. If you don't want to be a mother, you don't have to be a mother. And because I'm not ashamed or shy about being different from other people, uh, I was able to accept that truth about myself. And I was able to slowly start introducing that to my family and my friends and my audience. And now I'm very, very comfortable speaking about being child-free by choice. But um, I, I wanted to be a mother for a long time because I didn't know there was anything else to want. I think that would be so powerful for the people listening because I think there's different mindsets of people. So you've got the people who, no matter what, they want to be a mum in any circumstance. And I think I count myself in that category. I would have liked to have been a mum in a relationship, but relationship or no relationship, I still wanted to be a mum. Then you've got the people who really clearly don't want to have children and they're very clear and articulate about that then you've got the people who they don't know that they're more undecided and it's more like maybe I want to have children or maybe I only want children in this circumstance like in a particular circumstance so you've got people in all different scenarios and I know I've got a lot of people who are in that really like I don't know. I, I know I want to be a mum if I'm in a relationship, but if I'm not in a relationship, I'm just still not 100% sure if I want to do that. And that's a really difficult space to be because you do feel like you've got a time frame to decide as well. So I think it's really interesting to hear that 
you originally thought you did because you were just going with what's expected and I would imagine there's probably quite a few other people in that they're trying to make a decision um, but actually a lot of it is about what's expected even from themselves just because that's that's what we've grown up with um, so did did that just did that just happen for you sort of over time as you were thinking about it more how you know how long I suppose did it did it take you to come to that change of heart around actually maybe this isn't for me it was pretty fast once I started spending time with babies and I would suggest spending lots and lots of time with babies if you are on the fence about whether or not you want to have babies because it will clarify things for you instantaneously I remember being in my early 30s and I had just gotten a new job and I had an apartment in Brooklyn and I was very, very much living in my independence. I was very proud of myself. And a girlfriend of mine had recently had a baby. He, he must have been, I mean, he was old enough to sit in a high chair at the table, but I don't know if he was a year yet. Maybe he was almost a year. And we hadn't seen each other in so long. She had a baby and we made dinner plans. And she said, I can't get a babysitter. Do you mind if I bring my son? And I said, not only do I not mind, I would be thrilled to meet him and to spend time with both of you. And I was so excited to see them. And it was the worst dinner I've ever been at because you know what a one-year-old is like. They're, it's nonstop grabbing things, pulling things, touching things, doing, it's nonstop. If they are conscious, they are doing things that could hurt themselves <laughs> or doing things that you have to watch and control and make sure that everything is okay. I mean, even when you give them like a placemat and coloring uh, or crayons to color with, it's still like... Her attention was 100% on the baby and we were having conversations in three second intervals. And that's not a bad thing. She's raising a baby, raise the baby. I love it. I mean, there's no judgment there whatsoever. But what became very clear to me in that hour and a half that we were sitting at a table was that I had just acquired the independence I had wanted my whole life. And now I'm supposed to give that up and completely commit myself to this tiny little thing Absolutely not. Absolutely not. My, I, the, there are literally hundreds of reasons why I'm child-free by choice. But if I had to point the, to the strongest one, it is simply my freedom. There is nothing that matters more to me than my freedom and ability to make choices as I please and go where I please and do what I please and have ownership over my life and my independence. And I've seen what happens when you have a baby. And when they're, I mean, obviously they grow up and they're not babies forever and they learn how to play on their own and, you know, all kinds of wonderful things that children do. Um, but regardless, the primary focus of most decisions that you make after you have a baby involve your child. And I didn't want my decisions to be child-led for the rest of my life. I wanted them to keep being led by me because I had just acquired that. I had just acquired that independence and then there was this biological threat that was coming for me, the end of my fertility, right? Like telling me, oh, you have to go ahead and give up that independence and have a baby now. And I was just like, you got to be kidding me. I'm not doing this. This isn't for me. And I had never really evaluated whether or not it was for me before. So I, I didn't just have that one dinner and make that decision. I spent lots of time with lots of babies because I'm very lucky. I have many people in my life who have children. I consider that a gift. But the more time I spent with parents, the more clear it became that this just wasn't the track that I wanted my life to be on.
I think it's such good advice for the people who I've um, interacted with who can't, who can't decide. And um, I love what you said. I evaluated whether I wanted that in my life. It's just a practical thing to do. And um, I'm sitting here smiling because um, I have got no independence. All of my decisions are my daughter's before. <laughs> This morning, she didn't want me to wear what I was trying to put on. She didn't want me to get dressed myself. She wanted to dress me. Like everything is revolving around her. So I'm laughing because you couldn't be more right. <laughs> having no choice on anything and your whole life being led by a small person. But well, I love her initiative. I love her fashion <laughs> initiative. I think that shows leadership quality. I think that's fantastic. Well done, her. I have so many people messaging me saying she's definitely going to be a fashion designer because she, <laughs> I share like her outfits because she chooses all her own outfits and they are from my point of view questionable but she loves them and she's confident with them and she says I'm going to show my friends and I'm like okay. <laughs> so, oh that's so fun. I love the phase of when you just take a bunch of old dress up clothes from the thrift store or something and cut them up and make new clothes for yourself. I, that was a phase for me as well and I loved it. Oh I, I'm this, see that kind of stuff makes me happy. I'm an auntie as well because yeah. I still get to do that sort of thing but then also retain my independence. <laughs> That's something else I wanted to talk about because a lot of the women I interact with, if they're in this indecided period, it can be a struggle to then spend time with people with children. But I know that you've spoken a lot about actually how you love spending time with your friends who have children. Is that a process or, is, or do you think it's because you're so clear that you've got the right decision for you and therefore it's not, it's not a concern for you? That's a great question, and I wouldn't be able to answer it for somebody who is uh, desirous of having children and, and right now doesn't have them. But as somebody who does not want them, it's, I think it's a gift because I get to decide when it's over. I get to decide when I go home. I get to decide when my attention and focus have been too much on children in the moment and I need my time back. I still retain control over what I'm doing. And it's you know, I don't just go over for playtime. I do dinner time. I do bath routine. I do bedtime routine, like that sort of stuff, because it's, it brings me joy to help my friends. And it brings me joy to be in the life of this little person. I always want to be in the life of this little person. And uh, there's a joy there. There is a real joy there. And I love it. I just, and it, it, this is my greatest test. I moved, I moved to New Orleans because my best friend lives here and she had a baby. And this is the baby I'm referencing. If there was ever going to be a baby that knocked loose something in my brain to spur on the desire to be a mother, it would be this kid. And she only further solidifies my commitment to not having children, but to being a very present auntie. I would really like to be, because I don't just think it's about parents. I don't think parents are the only people raising kids. I don't think children only benefit from having two parents. I think they benefit from a lot of different adults in their lives. And the idea that I could be this happy auntie in her life that doesn't have a partner. So she has something to point to when somebody says, oh, do you have a boyfriend yet? Because you know, they ask little girls this at very young ages and it's horrible. And I'm, I'm going to absolutely collect heads if anyone does it to this kid. But she will be able to point to somebody who is a woman, who is not married, who is not a mother, who is happy. And how many of us had that? You know what I mean? It was just always seen as this sad, you know, disfavored, oh, you don't want to end up like her kind of a thing. But if she was able to look at me and say, if I do end up like Auntie Shaney, that would be great. I would like that. I would like to be that for, for other kids. So I think that's what, you know, drives me forward just to be a presence in her life. 
And also it's just nice when you like get recognized by a baby. Like, is there any better feeling than getting recognized by a baby that's not yours? Like, that's just absolutely outstanding. The last time I walked in her house, um, I was going over for uh, to have dinner with her parents and, and her. And we opened the front door and she looked at me and she went, oh, and she was so excited that I was there. There's just no better feeling in the world. And so if I'm, I'm experiencing all of this and loving every second of it, but still being further uh, acknowledged in my decision to not have kids, I know I've made the right decision, but I do, I do think that it's a conscious decision that I have made to spend time with her. And if it is painful for someone to spend time with children, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest forcing themselves to do that. Um, but I would say that there's a lot to be learned from time spent with children for those of us who are maybe on the fence about things or just kind of curious about more, more to do with children than the assumptions that have been placed upon us as people. Because we've been raised to believe that growing up and having kids is what you do. But we are allowed to challenge that. And that doesn't make us bad people, that doesn't make us broken, and that doesn't make us cold. It's fine to ask yourself if that's what you really want. And I think we can only find out if it's what we really want if we understand what it actually entails. So I do, I do recommend spending time with families, both just because they're lovely to spend time with and they're our friends and they're our family, and that's great. Um, but it's also really educational. And I love that because this is the exact conversation we have um, being solo mums, actually inviting and welcoming a wider range of people into our lives to be role models, to interact, to be part of a wider family that we've created. And because we haven't got that partner, it's amazing to have people, particularly, um, as you say, who, who are a role model for living in different family forms and inspiring in different ways so I think what's really powerful is that um to see how comfortable and happy you are with that situation to hopefully inspire others to, to think actually if I make the decision not to have children that doesn't mean I have no children in my life it means I haven't got my children but I could embrace still spending time with different families and different people I think it's really inspiring to to hear that because I think sometimes people almost deselect themselves from that situation because if it, they think if I've not got children, I don't necessarily want to spend time with children. But he hearing you talk about it is, you know, it's, it's such a different way of thinking. I hope so. But also let's bear in mind, my preference is not to be around children. Like if I wanted to be around children all the time, I would have one, but it's, I, I really value my time with adults only. And I, I've gained new respect for it having been around parents because like seeing the stark difference between, you know, your life pre-baby and then your life post-baby. And I've, I've started to have more value in my, in, again, in my independence and in my autonomy. Um, so it's, my preference is definitely still grown up time, yeah. but there is a preciousness to my time with children that I, I absolutely value. I'm so excited to watch this little girl grow up in real time and not just in the occasional visit, um, I think that's that's genuinely a gift. And I I mean, auntiehood is a beautiful thing. I, th I think we need to talk about being an auntie far more, or an uncle, you know, far more. Yeah. Um, it's such a beautiful thing. It's such a gift. And I, I wouldn't, I don't know that I would appreciate it as much if I had never challenged my own ideas about motherhood and parenthood and whether or not that was for me. Uh, but because I sat with it and I really like evaluated, is this what I want? And beyond that had the, you know, sort of bravery to say, no, it isn't. 
because uh, it is scary to admit it to yourself and it's far scarier to admit it to your parents. It takes a bravery, but once you've done it, the benefits are, are just absolutely legion. I think honesty and authenticity are gifts that you give to yourself there. And then further, they're gifts that you give to the people in your life, including the kids in your life. Because, you know, I've seen, we don't talk about this a lot because it's like, who wants to say this? But I have seen a lot of people just go through the motions of life and just have kids because they were supposed to. So I'm, I'm all for conscious uh, decisions to not have children if that's really not right for you or conscious decisions to have kids if it's what you really want and you've really given it like, no, this is the path for me. This is what I desire. I understand what it entails and I want this anyway. Uh, I think it's a beautiful thing, um, but a, a level of consciousness and authenticity in the decision to parent or not to parent or the decision to auntie or not to auntie is um, it's just, there's endless benefits to it in my mind. And you talked about um, sharing your decisions with your friends and your family. How, how did that go? I know it can be challenging because other people have their own view of what you should do. Was, was that easy? Was it, um, how did it go? Um, it was harder to tell friends because of my situation. I was raised by a single mother mm -hmm. and she was a single mother, not by choice. So she had two children and uh, my parents divorced when I was six. So that was not the uh, path that she thought she was going down, but it was the one that showed up anyway. So I did not have a good experience being raised by a single mom at all. And um, that's, a whole, that's a whole other thing. But one positive side effect of it was that when I told my mother that I didn't want children, uh, at least to my face, she was not disappointed. She's never been the kind of mother who was like, well, where are my grandchildren? That's never been the case uh, for us. So she's actually been the most supportive person in my life uh, for me not having kids. She has never said why. She's never asked why. And I appreciate that because everyone else has. Friends have publicly people have asked and that's never done. Nobody ever points at a pregnant woman's belly and says, why'd you do that? But they're really comfortable asking a single woman to her face when she says, no, I don't want to be a mother, uh, saying why. And, you know, assuming that it is because of some bit of brokenness inside of me or a coldness to me or a, a sense of defectiveness as a woman. So it's been harder to tell people that don't care about me than it has been to tell people that do care about me. But it takes bravery either way, because no matter what, no matter how people react to it, in your own head, you're still going against the grain. Mm -hmm. And that makes that, that creates all sorts of uncomfortable feelings because we want to be included and we want to be loved and we want to fit in. We're humans. Um, so going against that grain is difficult, but it's also kind of my career. I guess sort of go against every grain I can find. So I'm getting better at that. But it does take a lot of bravery. And I don't think that we celebrate uh, women who are child-free by choice often enough for doing something really difficult, which is admitting things to ourselves and out loud. And what is your view of, it feels like as a society, we've really prioritized romantic relationships. But of course, there's all different sorts of relationships. Um, what, what's your view on, do you think we have prioritized and, and, and how has that happened? Absolutely. We've absolutely prioritized heterosexual couplehood without question. Um, I think it has a lot to do with patriarchy and misogyny, but we don't have to go too far down that train track today. Um, we have absolutely groomed women to believe that we are incomplete without a romantic partner, that we are flawed without a romantic partner, that we are unwanted without a romantic partner. Uh, of course we have. Of course we have. And beyond that, we've we've celebrated 
romantic relationships more than anything else on earth. Literally, like I say this in the book, the only party that rivals a wedding is the Oscars or the BAFTAs. Like it just, name a party that's bigger than a wedding. They have just been so overblown, which speaks to our need as human beings to be celebrated. And it's just insane to me that the one thing we celebrate with reckless abandon is a marriage when really in the modern day and age, all a wedding is, is two people publicly continuing to do what they've already been doing. I just don't understand it. This is what I'm talking about, like calling out the truth of these narratives and just being like, this is a little ridiculous, you guys. Like $50,000 on an event, I mean, and that's being kind, on an event that has a 50-50 shot of still being true 10 years from now. Like, I don't, I don't put up with it. I really don't put up with a charade. I love weddings and marriages and people finding love with each other and, and deciding to cohabitate. I think it's beautiful. But I also think other kinds of lives are beautiful too and other kinds of accomplishments are beautiful as well. We just don't celebrate them publicly and we shame people for thinking that they should. So it just creates a ton of imbalance and a ton of feelings of lack. Like if I don't get what, if I don't get married, I'm never going to be fully celebrated. Like that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. I mean, personally, when I turn 40 next summer, I want you to be able to see the fireworks from space. Like I would love to throw just a massive, I always wanted to throw like a massive house party for um, like a long weekend for my 40th and I intend to, and I will, but it's, it's comical to me what weddings have become. It is absolutely comical to me. And it is something about standing back and really looking at, because it's, we sort of blindly just go along with these things, don't we? I mean, I know I do, it, that I never questioned it before. And it's only when you start looking at it and someone breaks it down into what it really is, where you're like, yeah, that is a bit bonkers, actually. Why are we doing that? But you sort of just carry on with things before we take time to stand back and look at them and think, you know, this is a bit madness. And one of the things that I'm, again, frustrated with myself from the past, um, well, I definitely don't do this now, is I used to be doing something amazing with amazing people, thinking, oh, it would be nice to be doing this with a partner. And, and, and then not fully embracing the moments and the people I was with and enjoying them, but rather this imaginary person that didn't exist. And now I just think, I've got amazing people in my life. I didn't need anyone else there at that time. But again, I just had this image in my mind about how it could have been, I'm sure based on a rom-com that I've seen down the track somewhere. <laughs> so um, I always get people you know my coaching clients who are considering solo motherhood you know that the vast majority are single some are in a relationship with someone who doesn't want children but that's a much smaller percentage to say what is it you actually want from a relationship and where can you get that from instead because I don't know about you but I think we have come as a society to think that this one person is going to give us all of these things. And you think, actually, we might need to look elsewhere for some of these things. Um, and pretty much all of them you can get from a variety of people rather than needing them from one person. Of course you can. And we also never ask ourselves what burdens we're taking on when we enter into a relationship. We just gloss right over them because there's nothing worse than being single, right? So we just sort of gloss over the amount of compromise you've just gone from zero to a hundred in terms of having to compromise 
And, you know, the day you enter into a relationship is a horrible time to figure out that you love not compromising when you were single. I think by now we understand that relationships don't fix anything and relationships don't fix anybody. Like our happiness is never going to be the responsibility of someone else. And our happiness is never going to be the responsibility of the relationship itself. Our, our happiness will always be our responsibility. And I think we will be far better fit to be in relationships when we understand that and start living that and knowing that to be true. But yes, you can, all, all of the wonderful things that we think relationships give us, you can get them from other places, but beyond that, you can give it to yourself. It doesn't necessarily, I, I don't like putting the responsibility of my happiness on other people. I like to put it on myself and think of why I'm hanging out with other people or why I'm pursuing friendships as something I'm giving to myself rather than something they're giving to me. And then I also think about what I can give to them. And I think when you approach relationships from like a giving place, you actually get way more back anyway. Um, friendships are remarkable. They're wonderful and they're endlessly variable and you can have so many of them instead of just one and they can all have different purposes in your life. They're just like, I see them as like this little like deck of cards and I get to pick out my favorite whenever I want it for like whatever activity. It's a wonderful thing. They're, they're just all kinds of, of lovely, lovely relationships. And there are, um, you know, it's a, it's a weak argument trying to tell me that I need a relationship to fulfill me or to make me feel like I'm less alone or whatever it is. Um, because there are so many different ways, even when I am entirely by myself, there are so many different ways to not feel lonely. So, and you know what, if you feel lonely, you feel lonely. I'm, I have no fear of feeling lonely and I don't want a fear of feeling lonely or being alone for single women. I don't want a fear of any of the emotions around singlehood because they're nothing to fear. We don't always have to feel good. And we don't always have to feel completely fulfilled and content and, and full. We don't have to. I don't want us to fear the negative emotions around singlehood because they do exist. Even when you reframe it for yourself and you love your singlehood, bad days arise. And I don't want us to fear those because we can do them. We can get through them. And, and I try to see them as gifts because in those tougher moments, I try to ask myself, what is this teaching me? What am I learning from this moment about myself, about life, about where I have room to grow, things like that? I try to view the uh, the sadder moments as, as opportunities, I guess. Um, but you're right. There are so many variations in relationships that can be so fulfilling. And when you stop idolizing the romantic relationship, you can start to find more balance in between this romantic relationship that you want and all of your friendships, because I have news for you. When you're in a relationship, you're still going to want those friendships too. Like a relationship is not going to completely wipe the slate clean of you needing a night with a couple bottles of wine and four girlfriends and, you know, no agenda. Like nothing is ever going to erase my desire for that. So I think we need more room for more variation, if you ask me. Yeah, I love that. I love, I love the deck of cards um, analogy. I, I, I love looking at it that way. And, and yeah, that we can just have countless friendships and, and relationships of all different types is exciting. Um, rather than focusing on this one that we must find like a needle in the haystack type one. So talk to me a bit more about your book then. What have you focused on in the book? Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. So the book is... I mean, in my mind, I honestly view it as a bit of a textbook. It's a bit of a how-to. It, um, it is every core component of reframing singlehood that I have discussed and explored and built in my work, all of it in one book. It is the absolute essentials of reframing that I value and that I have used to 
love and appreciate my singlehood and I want to give them to the world. So it is 17 chapters. Each one is dedicated to a very specific aspect of singlehood and a very specific narrative that is in need of reframing. And it's, you know, when you are starting a new class at university and there's like pre-semester reading involved, this is the one book that you need to read before loving singlehood. I want this to be the entire text. I also want it to be a bit of a reference guide. I, I, of course, it is my dream that everyone reads this cover to cover, loves it, and tells all their friends. But I also want it to be in your house, on your shelf, to refer back to when there is a specific moment of difficulty that you're having. I want you to be able to go to the table of contents, find it, and read that chapter again if you need it. I want it to be a source of support for single women when they need it. And this is, this is not a book about dating. I want to be very clear. This is not a book about dating. It is a book about living. It is a book about living well and living fully and authentically and happily as a single woman. And um, I, hope that, I hope that I have done my job well. I don't know yet. We're going to see when people start reading it and giving me feedback. But I've, I have thrown every part of what matters to me into this book. And I hope that, I hope that people like it. Well, it sounds amazing. And I think that, you know, for single women considering solo motherhood, there's two different elements, isn't there? Because there's embracing being single and letting go of the idea that, um, you know, we must be in a relationship to be happy. And then there's the decision about whether to become a parent or not. And I think usually those two decisions are intertwined. And I think what can be important is to look at them independently. So for my audience, I think what you're talking about is super important because you need to figure that out before you almost can tackle the, and do I want to have a child either in a relationship or outside of a relationship solo? And what's your view on how we intertwine those two subjects? I view the intertwining of a woman's singlehood and a woman's motherhood as a really uh, patronizing point of view, jamming them together and assuming that, oh, you have to find somebody because you have to find, you know, you have to find somebody to have a baby with. Um, that creates a pressurized environment on top of an environment that was already pressurized by societal uh, narratives and uh, opinions of singlehood. I think it is massively important to separate the two. I don't think they're separated often enough, particularly after you're 30 as a woman. They're jammed together and it just creates this narrative that every single woman is just this desperate older woman who just wants a baby and is trying to like nail a man down to have a baby with. That narrative is so dead, tired and gone. Like it's, I've even been speaking with, you know, uh, guy friends of mine and I would ask them, because when I was in my early 30s, I, I was still online dating at the time, and I noticed a massive drop-off in matches. The day I turned 30, I noticed a massive, massive drop-off in matches, so much so that I lied about my age, turned it back down to 29, and the matches went back up again. And so I was asking a guy friend about this, and he was like, well, we don't want to date women your age because we assume that they all just want to have a baby right away. And that hurt for many, many reasons, but also... I needed a place in the world for women to be allowed to just be, be allowed to just exist as we are and to not have to approach our romantic future from the position of a parent or not a parent and, and not have any variation there, not have any freedom there. Um, it's, it's a cruelty of biology and I will never say that it's not. And I acknowledge that in the book, but I also acknowledge that this book is not about 
the decision of whether or not to be a mother. I direct people to the work of Jody Day in the book because I really admire what she's doing. And I acknowledge that it is incredibly difficult and painful to be in the position of wanting to be a mother, not wanting to be a solo mother, and being unable to find a partner. That is a cruelty. I'm sorry. That is a cruelty of life. And I wish it wasn't happening. I wish it wasn't happening in such volume. I wish the dating space and the partnership space was not what it has become, but it, it has. So what are we going to do about it? And how are we going to take ownership of how we feel and try to feel better if we can? So I have very much kept those topics separate. First of all, I'm no expert on the topic of wanting to have children and not being able to find a partner. That's not my field. My field is how you feel about your own singlehood and acknowledging that you are allowed to separate those things. They are two separate aspects of you and they are allowed to be. And our pursuit of partnership is allowed to be a real thing for our selves and our hearts and our sexuality that's allowed to exist independently of whether or not we have kids, whatever age we are. And I feel like the narrative we've built around women in our 30s and 40s is an unfair one. So this is not a book about partnering up so that you can have a baby. That's not my, that's not my world. It really isn't. And I also think it's a world that needs to be talked about more, the separation of the desire for partnership and the desire for parenthood. Um, because we don't do it a lot to women. Men, it's almost never conjoined, is it? Um, but for us, it seems to always be. So this is one place in the world where I have separated the two. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to read it. It sounds like it's going to be uh, really useful. I, I think it's really good for people to, um, particularly for my audience who are considering solo motherhood, to separate it out and just focus on this element because I think it will put you in a much better position to then decide as a next step, you know, on the parenthood um, decision. So um, one of the things I sometimes worry about is I've been single probably for um, 12 years now, um, all, you know, on and off, predominantly single. And I do worry now after this long, really how good I would be <laughs> at, um, you know, meeting someone and, and having a relationship. Um, I know, I think you've also been single for quite a long time. Do, do you have that same worry or how do you feel about it? I think just the opposite. I think having been, I've been single for 13 years and I think having been away from it and observing things in this space for so long that I will be uh, far better suited to being in a relationship than I was 13 years ago. Far better. First of all, we're older and much wiser. That's inevitable. Uh, but also I'm just a lot more conscious in my relationships and my friendships and everything. So I think I'll be better at it, to be perfectly honest with you. And I also think that we need to shatter the narrative of time spent single accumulating in the negative. We, we look at somebody who's been saying, oh, you've been single that long? That's terrible. There must be something really wrong with you. Like, that's ridiculous. I mean, we don't, we don't judge other situations the way that we judge the length of time someone's been single or the length of time it's been since she's had sex. Like, that's anybody's business or any place to judge. You know, there are so many ways that we keep stats on singlehood. And I think so many of them are unfair and negative and just plain wrong. There is nothing about, no, I have not met a romantic partner and had a relationship with him in 13 years, but simply because I haven't met someone to have a relationship with in 13 years, that isn't a mark against my character. I mean, I might have a few choice words for fate and destiny at this point in time, but in terms of my fitness for love, no, I don't, I don't see that speaking negatively about me in the least. Yeah, no, I'm definitely very open to it. I think that I have embraced 
being single so much I just wonder whether that makes it harder to then you know invite somebody else in I hope it doesn't uh, and I guess it's about make meeting the right person as well when you meet the right person I think it should be easier is there anything else that I haven't asked you that I should have asked you no, I mean, I think that we have covered so much ground. I hope it has been helpful for your listeners to hear. Yeah, it's just, I'm in a moment of, you know, standing on the very edge of my first book being released and hopefully helping people. It's such a, I just want people to read it so badly that I wish it existed already. So it's, it's a tough position to be in, like knowing it's just a few weeks away and I'm just waiting for it to be unleashed and for people to read it and hopefully benefit from it. And just speaking to you and the way that you're challenging, you know, the the way we think and the way that we've been brought up thinking, um, I think it will be so powerful for people. So where can people get it if they want to get hold of it? On October 26th, everyone can buy it on Amazon. It's going to be available on Amazon regardless of where you live, hopefully. Um, but I have a triple check that it will be available in the UK and Canada and Australia, which are my biggest audiences outside of the US. And obviously it'll be available in the US on October 26th. I can't wait. My book is a Scorpio and I'm, I'm just thrilled. I, I love that for her. I love that for my book. I think it's very fitting. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Brilliant to talk to you. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Stalk and I podcast, I'd hugely appreciate if you rate, review and subscribe. I look forward to seeing you again next week.